Ladies and gentlemen, this is it. Welcome, welcome to Fight Performance Protest. Mark Brewer is your host, bringing you the latest in performance training from the fight community. Welcome to another episode of Fighters Performance Podcast. Today, the subject is harnessing anger and aggression in combat sports. And I'd like to introduce you to Paul Wood. How are you, Paul? Oh, excellent. Excellent. I'm stoked to have the opportunity to catch up with you, Mark. My sporting background, uh, well, if you want to say that, if you, if you want to dignify what I've done in the past as having a sporting background, which I don't really compare to yourself, is, of course, in judo. So for yep. you, you're one of my heroes, one of, one of the New Zealand judo icons and legends. So it's Thank a real you, pleasure to have Thank the opportunity you. to catch up with you. Cheers, man. Uh, um, I'll be talking to Dr. Wood about his experience as an academic, someone who has personal experience in two spheres of societies that may be perceived as violent. So in context to uh, harnessing anger and aggression in combat sports, I think you're the right man to talk to, Paul. I'd certainly agree with that. Um, also, as you mentioned, though, like I have a, a bit of diversity in terms of the breadth of my experience of anger and aggression, because I spent uh, just under 11 years in prison, and prison is an incredibly aggressive environment. And uh, I ended up there because as a teenager, I was someone who didn't have a good reign on my aggression and my anger. I was someone who grew up really thinking that violence and your capacity for violence and the demonstration of aggression was the measure of the man. And I spent a lot of my adolescence getting into fights, um, getting into physical confrontations. And then when I was 18, I ended up killing someone. And that was a result of a, a drug deal gone wrong. And I spent the next 10 years, 10 months behind bars. And prison is a very hostile, aggressive environment, as I'm sure will be no surprise to anyone. So I've got that sort of lens on it, but also my background, uh, my academic background, my PhD, my master's degree are in an area of psychology called individual differences, otherwise known as differential psychology. And this is the area of psychology that looks at how we differ from each other when it comes to attributes, behaviors, and characteristics like aggression, like emotional management or a lack of emotional regulation and, and things like anger and those sorts of emotions. So you know, I've got a pretty good grasp of the theory, but also I've, I've got a pretty good grasp of living <laughs> in a hostile environment too. You most definitely do. And current thinking around anger and aggression suggests that anger is that feeling you get when you're frustrated, while aggression is the ac action that may eventuate from feeling, right? So according to Tucker Ladd, and uh, anger is emotional psychological cognitive internal state experience you get frustrated at a referee's decision so aggression would be that response to the cause of anger this may be verbal verbal physical or infers negative intention whether that be direct aggression or indirect what role do you think broadly speaking anger and aggression play in violent sports Paul? Yeah, look, it's interesting, eh? And it's interesting when you start to sort of think about and define this stuff. Like you say, you know, like anger is an internal emotional state. And it's interesting because everyone experiences anger, but where that anger gets directed is what differentiates between, you know, visible aggression or a lack thereof, right? You have those people who 
are internalizers and internalize their anger. Like there's a whole heap of the world who are walking around just beating themselves up about everything, you know, being aggressive internally towards themselves, but you don't really see that. So we don't associate that with the, the forceful nature of externalized aggression. Whereas again, you know, fighting sports, you tend to see that, that external manifestation. It's interesting because I, I think anger is often the underlying emotional state that leads to what you would call, in fact, we've got instrumental, we've got hostile, and we've got relational aggression. Those are the three sort of broad categories. And hostile aggression, I think, is what we often think of when we think of aggression. And that's often driven by anger and things like that. And that's where I want to hurt you. I want to pay you back. I want to inflict some of my misery onto you. Whereas actually, when I think about aggression and the effective use of aggression, particularly in combat sports and fighting sports and other areas, I think of more instrumental aggression, which is that ability to be forceful and dominant, even though you might not feel that underlying anger mark. And I think that's quite an interesting thing to focus on because I think it makes a big difference in terms of your ability to harness that for your own benefit in training or in combat. Like when I think about my earlier days of being violent and aggressive, often it was driven by anger. And really that's a lack of emotional regulation, right? That's where I'm not able to control my emotional displeasure, as you say, my frustration, my annoyance. So that comes out into the world in a way which isn't necessarily helpful. But when I actually think about, for example, and you know, I'll use judo as an example, even, even though I'm certainly not at any kind of performance level like yourself, I, I think this is, is really relevant because my experience of judo is that I do significantly better in competition than in training. And that's because in competition, I regularly defeat people who are significantly better than me, technically, who are far more skilled than me, far more experienced than me, but who don't have the same capacity for instrumental aggression as I do. And one of the things I think that I really learned and harnessed from being in the prison environment is that ability to switch on and to be forceful and to dominate in a combat situation, to take the front foot. And I think that's one of the things that actually made it far easier for me to get my black belt. You know, when you're a hungry brown belt and you're trying to get those points, whereas if I'm in training and, I, and there's not that same competitive environment, then a lot of the people who will easily be throwing me and defeating me there, those same people who don't have as much experience of aggression, of being the victim of aggression, but also of being able to use it instrumentally won't do as well as me in competition. Does that make sense to you? If you, because this is one of the things I've noticed in combat sports and in training, right? In areas, because again, you know, mine's pretty limited. I did, a, just to give you an idea of, of my background in combat sports. So when I was a kid, I started doing judo pretty early and I also did something called Kempo School of Martial Arts at the same time. Hmm. Kempo School of Martial Arts was like MMA before MMA existed. They were actually really innovative, the instructors there. They used to get in people from other disciplines, other martial arts, to provide a greater breadth of training for their students. And they used to encourage people to cross-train, which was incredibly unusual mm. in the sort of the 80s and the 90s in martial arts when everything was so protectionist. It was always, our martial art is better than your martial art. You know, that was very much the attitude. And so I grew up in that sort of environment of doing lots of fighting. And then, of course... As an adult, I got back into judo. And yeah, I, I think one of the things I found interesting and I still find interesting, sometimes frustrating when I'm training with people, is you'll come across people who are incredibly talented and capable, 
but who aren't able to actually demonstrate the aggression required in order to really make the most of that talent. Is that something you've experienced as well in terms of your, your career in judo? I would say my aggression and how I utilize that and harness that within the sport was a key element to my success in judo, w- without a yeah. doubt. But um, when we're talking about lifespan development and we're talking about how people change over time, recent studies uh, like Dermy in 2017 suggest that the development of pro-social skills and certain theories such as Bronfen Brenner's uh, theory of social ecology describe a hierarchy of environmental factors influencing the growth and development of individual factors. So I think it, it can play a role not just in sport but throughout life and you know, you've brought a lot of your experience from younger life into this podcast. And from your perspective, how has anger and aggression affected the path that you traveled in life? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, again, as a society, what we tend to do is we tend to go any emotions that are unpleasant to experience or be around are bad. Whereas actually, that's a load of rubbish. You know, you can only evaluate your emotions on the basis of whether they're helpful or unhelpful to in particular circumstances you're in. And often that'll depend upon the actions you take and the outcomes you get from those emotions. So when I was younger, you know, I didn't have a, a good harness on the energy which would lead to aggressive behavior. And so it would come out as violence. And a big part of that was the way I was socialized and the area I grew up in. You know, the reality is, there's a lot of people who have uh, violent tendencies, a lot of the people who you come across in prison and that are people who have, you know, neurological damage, are people who have maybe fetal alcohol syndrome or have had a lot of concussions when they're younger, people who literally have greater challenge uh, regulating and controlling their emotions. You know, it's your thinking brain, it's your prefrontal cortex that needs to regulate those emotions. And if you've had neurological damage in an early age, then sometimes the impulse control, the, the emotional regulation is dialed down and the amygdala, which is that fight, flight, and freeze sense, can be dialed up. So I don't think I was someone who had, you know, neurological damage in that respect, although, you know, my wife and other people who know me well might be to differ there on some occasions. But I think I was more someone who I inhabited an environment where the prestige economy, the things that had me seen and valued and respected amongst my friends, amongst my peers, particularly in my teenage years, were actually about that capacity for violence and aggression. And I think some of that was driven by anger, but also a whole lot of it was instrumental. A whole lot of it was about impressing my mates. It was about, right, here's someone walking along who's much bigger than me. I'm going to start a fight with them because I know my friends will love this and I'll get respect for this. So even though I did you know, certainly have angry tendencies, as a lot of young men do, I actually think even back then, a lot of my uh, aggression was instrumental, was to serve social needs and purposes based on the people I hung out with. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting, is I think that that tendency towards aggression, to being forceful, really, that's my favorite definition of aggression, is forcefulness. That there's nothing wrong with that. It just depends on how it's channeled, right? Like, for example, I don't see myself as really much less aggressive than I was when I was younger, but I just channel it in a really different way. I channel that forcefulness and that that aggression, if you like, in a a way that we probably wouldn't traditionally or as a standard measure associate with aggression. And that is just towards positive things that I want to achieve outcomes in. You mentioned before that it can be driven by the sort of frustration. 
Frustration is an incredibly helpful emotion that you experience when you encounter a barrier to your goal. If you regulate that emotion and use that as the energy necessary to overcome the barriers and achieve your goals. I do that in all areas of my life. I would say I feel a sense of aggression even, a sense of forcefulness towards myself and have a drive when it comes to not being the best parent I want to be. I would say it actually provides fuel and motivation for me in many respects. But again, that's because I can regulate it so it doesn't spill onto other people and contaminate them. And it's used with a real laser beam focus for particular objectives. And, you know, when I think about, you know, again, my experience of fighting and combat, you know, I, I think one of the big things there is that in prison, it's such a hostile environment and you have so many people who can't regulate their emotions and who are aggressive and who are, you know, really aggressive, um, not in that instrumental sense, but in that hostile sense. I'm out to hurt you. I'm going to emotionally displace onto you. I'm feeling unpleasant emotions. I've got nowhere to go with that. So I'm going to take that out on you. And what's interesting, one of the things we know actually, Mark, is that acts of aggression against other people actually reduce your own levels of stress and pressure as the aggressor. It's interesting because um, one of the things I've had quite a bit of involvement in over the years is dealing with people in senior leadership positions perceived as workplace bullies. I don't do so much of this now just because I, I don't have as much interest in it. But one of the things that we know from the research that is really interesting is that people who engage in bullying behavior, i.e. aggression, are less likely to suffer stress-related issues and illnesses after they've aggressed towards others, after they've bullied others. It's kind of like, I'm going to give you my stomach ulcers by being aggressive towards you. And again, you know, it's not surprising. The reason bullying behavior occurs is because it serves some function for the bully. If it didn't, you know, it would extinguish. You wouldn't carry on doing it. And again, one of the benefits it actually serves for people who are aggressive is it tends to actually lower their cortisol level. You know, it tends to increase, you know, their serotonin and these other things, which neurologically have a positive impact on your well-being. And, you know, I would say that's one of the reasons as well that if you look historically, that I think there's been a reason for aggressive tendencies to be adaptive from an evolutionary perspective. Like if we think about it, right, if we, if we use that evolutionary lens and we go, the reason this stuff exists is because it's been useful to our potential ancestors in terms of their ability to reproduce and raise viable offspring. So in which ways could aggression and forcefulness be beneficial there? Oh, well, establishing your hierarchy in the troop, right? Like the gorillas, the silverbacks and the rest of it. I want to establish my value to my potential mates. But also think of the role of aggression in terms of expanding one's resources, eh? You know, that drive and that energy to go beyond your immediate patch, your immediate terrain to invade the terrain of others and therefore increase your own resources. I mean, all you have to do is to look at someone like Genghis Khan, right? Like the, the, the stats around how many people um, have, uh, 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 have Genghis Khan as an ancestor in the world is crazy, right? It's like literally insane. And it's simply because he used instrumental aggression in order to really be a massive biological success from a genetic point of view, right? So again, the reason this stuff exists is because it served a purpose. It's been adaptive in some way. And I would argue that, you know, it still is adaptive. It still is incredibly useful. But again, it has to be channeled appropriately. 
like if you look at it in terms of personality, right? So if we, if we look at the standard, the most common model of personality is the big five. Mm. A good way to remember this model is ocean. Openness to experiences, the O, C for conscientiousness, E for extroversion, A for agreeableness, N for neuroticism, which is really just emotional stability. You know, your ability to sort of deal with stress, to deal with anxiety, or whether you tend to be more nervous, anxious, that sort of stuff. And what we know in terms of this is that agreeableness is negatively correlated with aggression. So people who are more agreeable are people who are just going to be more accommodating, more obliging, more likely to put other people's needs first. These are the people who are lovely to work with, Mark. These are the people who are lovely to be around. But these are not the people who are particularly good at serving their own needs and meeting their own agendas. Because of that lack of aggressiveness and putting other people first, some of the challenges they often experience in the workplace and in life is just not standing up for themselves just being more willing to go with the flow rather than actually blaze the trail and risk creating a little bit of annoyance and offense for other people. And we know that people who are less on that agreeable scale, who are more aggressive, particularly instrumentally aggressive, are more likely to ask for and demand pay rises. You know, they're more likely to be comfortable asserting authority and taking lead. There's all sorts of benefits to the tendency towards aggressive behavior. But again, as we're talking about, part of it is how have you been socialized to manifest that? And you and I, mate, a couple of knuckle draggers, right? <laughs> a couple of people who have grown up grunting. Hey, you know, we weren't necessarily socialized in the way that perhaps someone who came from a different socioeconomic background or environment might have been, right? And, you know, fortunately for you, you found a path, man. You know, you, you found martial arts and, 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 physical training, and what a fantastic pathway to positively be able to use that tendency towards aggression, right? Because otherwise, you know, I could know you from prison if you'd grown up in a different era and hadn't found that path for yourself, right? So again, it, for me, it's not aggression in and of itself being a positive or negative thing. It's a matter of the context and how you use it and what you get from the actions you take around it. Uh, I Paul, I believe we first met at uh, New Zealand Judo Championships in Wellington. And since then, you have been on a pursuit of excellence. And I've personally been following your success, launching a book, becoming a keynote speaker, presenter, getting married, starting a beautiful family. And you have an extremely powerful story and an inspirational outlook on life. I'm so interested in anger and aggression because I definitely started out in life as an angry and aggressive young man, but reflecting on my life and seeing that being part of a community such as judo helped me build that identity, personal values, and an ethos to help me manage you know, myself throughout life. As two people who care about society and the struggles of men and what what place do you think there is for sports such as judo, which could essentially be considered violent? Mate, it is the place. What we can't do is deny the reality of human nature. Deny the reality of testosterone riddled adolescent males in particular. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm talking about that because that's what I relate to. And those are the people we have the greatest issues around aggression with. 
You know, let's face it, women can certainly be aggressive too, but predominantly it's young men. And I would say, listening to you and thinking about you, you know, it makes me reflect on my own youth. Had I had someone who had just given me more of a nudge in the direction towards sports, had I maintained my membership in martial arts and organized clubs, rather than just taking what I knew to the streets and then just gravitated towards people who appreciated that, I don't think I would have ended up in the same place had I found a positive outlet and direction for those tendencies and that aggression. I believe combat sports provide a path for certain young men. And I believe actually the discipline, the camaraderie, the sense of community, the sense of belonging, the sense of identity and the sense of self-value you can get from being able to play to the strengths associated with those tendencies, which are so real and present for so many adolescent males in an environment which is safe and in an environment where you are not doing damage to other people in an uncontrolled manner. I think that is the path. That is the way forward. You know, again, to deny that stuff you know, is just ridiculous. You can't deny the physiological, biological reality of what's going on there. We've got all this testosterone in our bodies. And if you're a particularly high testosterone male, particularly adolescent male, when the thinking part of your brain responsible for impulse control is closed down for renovation, and you're just going around with all of these strong emotions, you know, you need a positive outlet for that stuff. There has to be a path for you. And I seriously believe that combat sports and martial arts provide exactly that path. It's a positive controlled outlet for those tendencies that when given full reign in an uncontrolled environment, you know, get you into trouble. I'll tell you this right now, I definitely want my kids involved in martial arts. I'm someone who's really anti-violence these days. You know, I believe that violence is the ultimate sign that you've lost. You can't operate as a more evolved individual. But that's in the context of dispute and disagreement. That's not within the context of having a physical challenge with someone else, which is such a satisfying activity. And it's such a primal activity. And, you know, again, I think it's a real mistake to deny our more primitive roots. We are very close to our other primate cousins. We're the third chimpanzee genetically. And it's easy to fool ourselves and think, oh, no, we're so different. But the reality is we're not. And it's important for us to actually be able to, you know, be true to ourselves in terms of you know, what provides us satisfaction and meaning, but in a way that doesn't create harm for ourselves or others. And I would say that a martial arts environment is exactly that type of environment. It's interesting though, right? Because in martial arts, you do come across a variety of people and you do come across people who have that hostile, aggressive outlook, eh? who do actually want to hurt people. But in my experience, you know, you recognize the different types of clubs and people that you get that maintain that. It's interesting, eh? Because you would have trained in heaps of different judo clubs. I different, the different cultures, eh? Like I remember training with Graham Spinks in Christchurch. And, you know, he's, he's a, a multiple Olympian, eh? He's like, God, he's, he's just such a crazy judoka because he's, he's so unlikely in many respects. He's an enthusiastic you know? martial artist. But my God, he is so good. He is just so good. And 
I remember training at his club a couple of times when I was in Christchurch for work and being really impressed and pleasantly surprised by how deep he would go on the philosophy of judo during classes. You know, where he would talk, be talking about intention, philosophy, values, that sort of, because that's very Jigoro Kano, right? You know, who created judo, you know, who was an educator. Whereas I've been to other clubs where, you know, philosophy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's very much about trying to hit you with the earth, put you through the mat, and that's the intention. And there are pros and cons to both, but I think when you're younger and you enter into martial arts, you know, the, the, the philosophy and the ethos of the club can have a really big impact on you. I think for guys like ourselves who know who we are in the world, we're less influenced by that at this point. You can go and, and train at a club full of brawlers and you know, still know who you are. You're going to adapt to that. But when you're younger, when you're still trying to navigate the world more in terms of, okay, what is this place? Who am I supposed to be? How is this supposed to work? You're way more influenced by that stuff. I think one of the interesting things for me is if I reflect on the difference between myself and my older brother, John. I don't know if you've met my brother, John. He, he lives in John. You know, like John is a lifelong committed martial artist. He's got a black belt in judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He had an um, age-grade world title in jiu-jitsu. He's got a black belt in um, Kempo School of Martial Arts. You know, he's, he's done proper boxing, Muay Thai and uh, kickboxing bouts, all this stuff. You know, he's, he's a lifetime of it. And we trained at the same clubs when we were kids. But he got the intention and had a different level of understanding of Bushido, the way of the warrior and the ethics around that than I did when I trained. So when I trained, maybe it was because I was younger and I didn't really get that stuff, but I just took the tools and then took them to the street without any rain on my aggression. It just made me a more dangerous person, really. Whereas for me as an adult, like I so don't think of martial arts in that way. And my older brother, he, you know, he didn't have that approach either. You know, he, he got all those subtleties of, you know, this is for use in a controlled environment that I missed as a kid. And again, we were training in the same clubs. So it's interesting, you know, how different your take can be depending on who you are, your personality, but also perhaps your level of maturity, eh? Cultures within cultures too there, right? What part of anger and aggression is innately nurture to nature? Man, I, I always think the nature-nurture question is such a false debate, right? Because you can't extricate them. You can't separate them. Let me give you an example, my man. You know, what's the hormone most associated with aggression? Testosterone, Test right? Mm. Now, how much testosterone we have, how much we're exposed to, there's definitely genetic components to that, right? In terms of our natural tendencies towards producing testosterone. But a massive influence is how much testosterone we're exposed to in the womb. Now, a lot of us, when we think nature-nurture, we think of afterbirth as when nurture begins. But actually, nurture begins from, from conception in the womb. And one of the things we know, for example, is like, you can have an idea of testosterone exposure based on the length of people's ring and index finger. So the more testosterone you're exposed to, the longer your ring finger is relative to your index finger. So say, for example, if you didn't get exposed to much testosterone in the, room, those will be, in the womb, those will be more similar. And for example, you can look at the hands of, of girls as well, of females who have less testosterone than men normally, and you can make predictions about athleticism based upon 
that ringing index finger. Because if they got exposed to more testosterone in, in the womb, that'll have a positive impact on their future athleticism. So again, we, we often think about this, oh, what was the family, the environment? And we think of that as nurture, but nurture begins right back there in the womb. And so we're so influenced from the get-go there. And I always like to think of it like this, your genes provide a recipe and the recipe provides the parameters of what you might see. For example, whether you end up being six foot five or not, that's going to be in part dependent upon your genetic predisposition for height. But like any good recipe, once you actually use it and once you try and bake a cake, oh my gosh, it can come out with many different cakes using the same recipe depending on quality of ingredients, timing, everything else. It has a massive impact. And I really do think those things are inseparable in many respects. You know, obviously, if you have a genetic predisposition, you're more likely to demonstrate aggression. But in order for that to happen, there's so many environmental things that must come into play to switch on those genetic tendencies, to bring those actually to fruition. You know, in the same way that you can have that genetic tendency to be six foot five, but unless you actually get the nutritional requirements associated with growth at the, the optimal points, you're not going to reach that. You're not going to be anywhere near that. And in the same sense, you, you can have a genetic predisposition towards schizophrenia, but unless you experience significant life stresses and don't have coping mechanisms at certain periods of your life, it's unlikely that'll manifest. So there's all of these differences. I, I really do think socialization, the nurture bit, is more about how we manifest the aggression. Whereas you can't separate the existence of aggression or how much you have from nature and nurture. I think they're, they're inextricably linked together. But, um, you know, what you grow up thinking is the path in terms of how you demonstrate that stuff that is more influenced by the environment you are. So again, it's not the existence of the aggression. It's more, what does it look like? Like, for example, you were talking about my life and the things I've done. You know what I've done? I've aggressively pursued my life, Mark. That's what I've done since I've gone out of prison, you know, finishing my PhD, getting myself my skills in my career, building a business for myself, munching um, significantly above my weight with the wife I have. All of those things are a direct result of me aggressively, forcefully pursuing my life, getting after it, right? Getting amongst. So that same tendency is there, but it's just directed in a really positive way now. Mm. And my kids, my kids will grow up with lots of energy and a willingness to carve their way in the world. And that's how they will learn to place value on the tendencies towards aggression. Whereas they won't be reinforced, they won't be rewarded for a lack of emotional regulation and just uh, a hostile aggression, which is about taking out their anger or other emotions on other people. Mm. Make sense? Complete sense. Paul, now I see you as such a vibrant person with a great deal of passion for giving back to the community. And yet at the same time, you've had what many of us would consider kind of an unthinkable experience and you've came out the other side. What would you say would be the key survival tools for you in terms of anger and aggression in, mm. in context of sport? Yeah, I, I think the ability to be present, I think is the key. And I think this is something that I, I really learned in prison, but I since have learned that the research around and understood more effectively. And what I mean by that, 
is I mean the ability to focus your attention on immediate sensory experience and what's going on right now so that actually you can dial down how much control the emotional part of your brain has and more effectively make decisions based on what's going to be effective for you to be successful in the moment. So one of the things that I, that I learned in prison is that just going wild, just giving rein to anger, wouldn't get you anywhere. It wasn't a, a useful technique for survival. The useful thing to do in a combat situation is to be able to harness your mental resources to pay attention to what's going on right now. Whereas the problem is, is when you dial into that emotion, when you just give full reign to that anger, what you do is you reduce your ability to actually make decisions and you just react. Now that can be useful in some situations, but often it's not in combat. One of the things I observed watching many, many attacks and fights in prison is that actually, generally the people who would come off best were not necessarily the best fighters or even the most angry, but were the people who could be a bit more strategic with their energy. I can't tell you how many people I have seen lose fights because they just went all out and they weren't fit enough to sustain it. They just blew themselves out based on like a lack of emotional regulation, just full reign to the anger. And, you know, it's not like the movies. You're pretty unlucky if you get hit with a shot that actually knocks you unconscious. If you're in a combat situation and you've got all of that adrenaline pumping through you, it's amazing that the, the damage you can actually sustain and still you know, maintain your consciousness and be upright, unless you're very unlucky in terms of how you get hit or you're fighting with someone who really knows what they're doing. But most fights aren't like that, right? Most people don't really know what they're doing in a fight. And so I would see this and I got really good at whenever I was in a situation where I was getting attacked or getting into a fight of just really switching on my attention. And it's one of the things that I just think was incredibly powerful and useful that enabled me to be more instrumental in aggression and to re-engage my thinking brain. You know, like I've, I've done a bit of work in sports psychology and uh, with some of the rugby franchises and that. And one of the things that they do really well, particularly at a high level in New Zealand, is give people the skills to actually be able to switch back into the thinking brain and out of that just anger, worry, fear, sort of emotional part of your brain, that limbic system. They re-engage the thinking brain. And the reality is, is you're not trying to re-engage it so much that you no longer have the energy from that anger, from those unpleasant emotions, but you just have to re-engage it enough that you can actually make choices and decisions. You can respond rather than react. And one of the most useful ways you do this, and this is one I just you know, learned through combat experiences in prison, but again, I understand the research around now, is you choose what you pay attention to. Think about this from a physiological perspective, right? This is what your body's doing all the time. You're having sensations, constantly sensations. You have these things called sensory neurons in all the different areas of your body, and they're constantly sending your brain signals. For example, Mark, what does your right big toe feel like right now? What does the temperature on your skin feel like? You've got these sensations that are available to you all the time, but you don't have the bandwidth and the mental capacity to be paying attention to all of them. And so you've got these sens sensations. The next thing your brain is doing is perceiving, choosing where it focuses its bandwidth. For example, I bet you, if you focus on your right big toe right now and you go, okay, what can I feel for my right big toe? I bet you that's what you weren't previously focused on, right? when we're having this conversation. But that sensory experience was always available to you. 
Now, what you focus on, what you choose to pay attention to, then directly influence your emotional experience. And that emotional experience fundamentally is either trying to get you to stay or get you to move. If you experience uncomfortable emotions, it's trying to prompt you to move, to take action, to change your situation. If you experience pleasant emotions, it's trying to prompt you to stay, to benefit from the situation you're in. And then after you've got those emotions, then you've got thoughts, then you've got actions. Those are the five things that are going on from a physiological, neurological perspective, right? And what I found, and again, I just found this through experience. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I found if I paid deliberate attention to immediate sensory experience, then what that did is that dialed down the fear, dialed down the anger, dialed down all that stuff enough that I could then respond and make decisions and choose rather than just going wild. Because if I didn't choose to focus my attention, then what would happen is all of that bandwidth would just be in that you know, monkey part of my brain that wants immediate gratification and just wants to act right now. And I've been in many situations where I've actually managed to avoid things escalating and getting worse because that ability to go matrix mode, boom. I'm just 100% now focused on what your shoulders look like on the range you have from me right now. I'm just focused on all of these things that just redirect my bandwidth back to my thinking brain. So because it's a challenging situation, like a combat situation, those emotions are still there, but they're just dialed down enough for me to now be able to be more responsive rather than reactive. And again, it's, it's something that I've really learned that helps me stay calm in those situations. And it's definitely something that I employed in judo as well, where I would just go, right, okay, so, you know, you're coming on the side of the mat and different people have their different little rituals that they do. And I would just be, right, okay, I'm just focusing how do my feet feel on the tatami on the mat right now? You know, what do my fingers feel like? And so I'm, I'm taking away my perception from my thoughts and from my emotions, which might be going, oh, no, gosh, they look dangerous and the rest of it. I'm redirecting that bandwidth. I'm choosing what I focus on, what I pay attention to. And as a result of that, I'm better able to harness all of that aggression, all of that fear, all of that stuff that might otherwise overwhelm me. Because what we know, right, when it comes to sports performance is you need to be emotionally engaged. You need to be experiencing the right level of stress to hit peak performance, the Yurtz Dodson curve, right? But what we know is, is that you can actually influence those levels of dopamine and adrenaline in order to hit that peak curve, depending on what you pay attention to and how you engage with mental skills. And that choosing to redirect the bandwidth to immediate sensory experience is one of the ways to dial up the dopamine and dial down the adrenaline enough to maintain on that peak point on the curve. Because like I said, I have fought so many people who I have beaten who I should not have beaten on paper, but they just didn't have the same familiarity with combat situations. That's what I believe. Because hmm. I mean, like for me as well, it's, pers it's perspective, right? Like if I'm going for a judo competition, I'm going, okay, worst case scenario, I get a bruised ego here because someone upons me in the first few seconds or something like that. I've come from situations where people have attacked me with hatchets and knives and other things. So for me, what aggression is, is relative to that benchmark. What danger is, is relative to that benchmark. 
as a result of that, I'm quite comfortable in that sort of like controlled combat environment. But also another thing I do, which really helps me out in judo, and, and, and I think is really important in terms of this whole aggression to your advantage, but is I am the aggressor. I take it to people. You know, in a judo bout, how it starts and you go, hi, Jimmy, right? You know, you bow, the ref goes, hi, Jimmy. And then what most people do is they wait. What I do, as soon as I bow, I attack, right? And legally, you're allowed to do that. But most people don't do that. Most people are sort of like waiting. I try really hard to use instrumental aggression so people can't even get their game happening. Because I know that I'm not really good enough to play defensive judo. I am way better off if someone doesn't even have the opportunity to start trying to make their moves. They're just trying to deal with my aggression. And I very deliberately make that choice. But again, part of it is because I'm able to dial down the adrenaline enough associated with that anger and that aggression through that deliberate attention and focus, then I'm in a way better position to actually be able to be instrumental rather than to just be out of control. Does that make sense, Mark? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'd recommend any, anyone just go in there with the intention to not let their opponent do what they want to do and impose their objective, right? Yeah, it, it makes such a difference, right? And, and don't get me wrong, like this is the thing, I can do that if I'm fighting people who are weekend warriors like myself, if I come across someone like you, it doesn't matter what my intentions are. I'm hitting the mat really quick. And that's because, you know, there is a real skill difference there. But if it's within the same ballpark, geez, that aggression makes all the difference, right? Hmm. And, you know, again, I think that's the same in the workplace. What we know from the research is that people who are forceful about asking for raises and about placing value on themselves are way more likely to get paid more. Mm. People who are more passive and are just kind of like, well, hopefully they'll just recognize my value. They end up getting paid a whole heap less than people who are appropriately assertive. And that's what I'm talking about there because it's a fine line between aggression and appropriate assertion, right? And part of that can depend upon the context you're in and the other people's perceptions of you. You know, for example, I was talking to my wife, like I do a bit of work with the Defence Force and, you know, I love the Defence Force. I love the Army. It's what I expected to join. I, I, I wanted to go into infantry and then try and get the SAS growing up. That was my sort of thing. And had I pursued that path, that would have been a positive outlet for my aggression. That would have certainly controlled that and reined that in. But of course, I made different choices that put me in prison instead. But, you know, my older brothers both joined the Army, that sort of stuff. And I was talking to my wife about it. She was in the army, she's ex-army, and uh, she was talking to me about basic training. And the first time she met the sergeant, right, who was responsible for their basic training. And the level of aggression, man, that, you know, is experienced in that kind of context compared to what anyone in, a, in another area of life would consider reasonable is completely different. Right? But again, within the context of basic training in the army, behavior that's considered to be aggressive but acceptable mm. is really different than what it would be in Civvy Street in an office where the same behavior would immediately get people fired and charged with assault is what I would guess, right? So again, there's that whole fine line between appropriate assertion and aggression. And I do think that sometimes that's kind of in the eye of the beholder 
And I think one of the challenges for people like ourselves who are more comfortable and more experienced when it comes to combat sports can be actually recognizing where aggression begins for other people who haven't been exposed to, you know, physical violence and confrontation in that kind of context. Because one of the things I know is that because of my background and the level of violence I've experienced, my idea of what aggression is, it requires a way higher bar than most people. You know, if you're just being direct with me and raising your voice, I won't interpret that as aggression. I'll just interpret that as us having an argument or a disagreement, maybe. Whereas for someone who hasn't been exposed to violence or aggression, that sort of thing can be incredibly intimidating, can be incredibly forceful. So I always think that's one of the interesting things. Another thing I think, Mark, that's really important to know about the value of the instrumental aggression, right, in combat versus the hostile aggression is that I don't think hostile aggression, the, the, just the use of anger, actually is as beneficial for you in terms of the pursuit of excellence. The problem with it is, is that what we know from the research is that in combat situations is when you lose, when you lose and you're experiencing strong, hostile emotions towards your component and you get beaten, it has a bigger impact on your confidence going forward than if you're actually about the pursuit of your own potential. An instrumental aggression can be used as a vehicle for me to try and do the best I can without actually me holding on to a whole lot of potentially distressing emotions around it. And what that means is if I lose, I'm in a better position to go, okay, what can I learn from that in order to be more effective going forward? Whereas if I'm out there going, I'm going to waste Mark, I hate Mark, and Mark beats me, it's way harder for me to come back from that psychologically and in terms of my confidence, then if I'm out there going, Mark's not my competition, I'm my competition. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to operate in a way which makes it most likely that I'm going to be bringing the best version of myself. I don't even care about Mark. Mark's just a tool for me to do that. Then if Mark beats me, then I don't take it as hard from a psychological and emotional perspective. Then I can go, okay, what can I learn from this that enables me to be more effective going forward? And in many respects, when you, when you talk about aggression and the path of this, what we're talking about is our fundamental need for status and significance as members of a, of a social species. The need to feel that we're empowered, we're seen and valued. And what we talk about in terms of the psychology of that is we talk about people who use the path of dominance to try and meet that need for significance, for feeling they're seen and valued. And that's kind of where the hostile aggression comes in in particular. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to dominate you. I'm going to pull you down. I'm going to defeat you, right? But the other vehicle for feeling significant and seen and valued is prestige. Now, prestige is when people place value on you, hold you in esteem and respect because you have skills and knowledge that they place value on. And the vehicle for prestige is the pursuit of mastery. And the pursuit of mastery is about getting better yourself rather than beating other people. So let's say as an athlete, you know, and I use that term loosely with myself, let's just imagine I'm an athlete, okay? Let's imagine that my wife would be in hysterics at the moment. She's a very competitive mountain biker. Anyway, so let's say as an athlete that my goal is to win, right? It's dominance. 
So when I go to a competition, it's all about beating everyone. That's the only way I measure myself. Then if I beat everyone, I'm happy with that, even if I didn't perform particularly well, even if I could have done a lot better. And I also don't bother to spend a whole lot of time reflecting on how I could do even better last time because my goal is to win. My goal is to defeat. But if my goal is the pursuit of excellence and mastery, then my goal is getting better, not being good. My goal is personal improvement. And that's where even if I win in a competition, I go, okay, so what worked well there that I would do again? And was there anything I would do differently? What are my work on? What are the ways I can still get better from here? And that's how you become really world-class by focusing on competing against yourself so that tomorrow's version of you, next competition, you know, that person who shows up is just a little bit better than last competition. And that's not based on anyone else's your comparison. That's based on you and your personal drive to get better at what you do. And that's where I think you can harness a lot more and be more, far more effective with that instrumental aggression in terms of that pursuit of excellence, right? That getting better, not being good. And the cool thing about the goal of getting better is it's a goal that never stops, but also it's a goal that adapts itself to changes. You know, one of the things I struggle with with judo and combat sports, Mark, and that is I'm in my 40s, dude. And I'll tell you this right now. If I go along to like a BJJ class or something, and I come across these like, you know, 20-year-old blue belts, and I'm like, I should be able to beat this person. But dude, I'm not 20 anymore. And if my whole measure is on, am I able to dominate and beat everyone? Then I'm not going to be able to age in this activity effectively. My goal has to be about getting better myself and measuring my progress based on who I was yesterday, who I'm going to be next training session, those incremental improvements. And again, that's where I can really use that instrumental aggression and where I can use defeat still to bounce back and to get better rather than as, oh my gosh, this destroyed me. And that's why it's really interesting when you look at people like Mike Tyson, right? Who was arguably the most talented boxer ever, but his aggression was hostile. You look at him before fights, he wanted to hurt people and whoa, he was good at that. But when people really challenged him like Evander Holyfield, how did he respond? He didn't cope. He got himself disqualified by biting Evander's ears. You know, that, that, that's how he coped. Because again, the hostile aggression can't deal with not dominating in the way that the instrumental aggression can. But, you know, aggression in combat sports, man, it's a must. And it really annoys me when I come across people who are super talented, you know, who don't seem to buy into that idea or who don't seem to be able to switch that on. And I think that's where mental skills are such an important part because I think there are different psychological techniques that you can use for that purpose. Here's one. If you're a fighter who's listening to this or someone who wants to get better at combat sports, but you feel that you take more of a back seat and that you lack aggression, what I would suggest you do is that you create an alter ego for yourself. You create a fighter identity. You don't need to share this with anyone. You don't need to wear a mask and a cape, okay? But you need to be able to go, when I'm in this context, in this situation, this is who's showing up. I'm going to be this person. Because what we know is we, we have these narratives about ourselves, right? These stories that we tell based on our past. 
that massively influence how we behave and who we are now. So check this out, right? The whole alter ego idea is, is a really good evidence-based approach because all we're doing <laughs> is we're choosing to rewrite the sort of the script and create a bit of a, a template and a frame that we can use that will influence our behavior and our decision-making. So we've got to think, who is it we want to be? And I'll tell you what, for the fighters who are watching this, you really need to come up with a name for your character, okay? So if it was Brewer the Beast, right? Okay, Brewer the Beast, this is where you go, and then before competition you go, right, this is where Brewer the Beast gets written into the script. And as soon as I say that, for example, Brewer the Beast, you know, we don't need to come into a whole lot of detail here around how they behave because that name gives us a really good idea, right? So how would Brewer the Beast show up? What would they do? Would they be, oh, you know, I'll just wait for my opponent? No, that's not how Brewer the Beast rolls, right? So coming up with a new identity for yourself is actually really powerful in terms of giving you direction around how you behave in those contexts. And like I said, this is really evidence-based stuff in psychology. I haven't really heard anyone else apply it within a combat sport scenario, but it's certainly one that we use more generally. And one of the things that you can do as well to help you figure out who you want your character to be is reflect on some of the experiences you've had in training or in competition where you haven't been the best version of yourself as a fighter and write about those as a short story where you put all the details in there but here's the trick write about it in the third person for example instead of going oh look I showed up to this competition and I was looking at the people I was going to be fighting against and I started to feel intimidated and you know I thought oh god I can't compete against Mark so I went out there and so instead of you know, being aggressive, I just kind of like, just tried to stay away from him for longer and just waited around. Instead of doing that, I, this is how you do it. You go, Paul showed up to this competition. Paul was looking at his competitors. Paul was thinking this. Paul was feeling this. Paul did this. The reason you do it in the third person is it gives you distance from it. And that distance enables you to better and more clearly see what was going on. But it also gives you distance from the emotional experience in a way that will make you just shake your head at yourself mm. in terms of the unnecessary, you know, detriment that you did to yourself through your thoughts and your actions. And then what you can do is you can go, okay, in that context, that competition there, Mark, I was just talking about, if I could rewrite the script there, who would I have show up? Because if I look at that short story and I come up with the character name for who was there, I would go, Timid Tim. That's who showed up there, Timid Tim. Or worried about everyone else, Wally. But if I wanted to rewrite the script, then who would show up there? Brewer the Beast. I'm going to harness Mark Brewer. I've seen him compete. So now when I go there, I go, right, Brewer the Beast has just arrived. From that point forward, that's who I'm being. It's like being an actor in a movie, okay, where you're literally going, this is who's showing up. This is who I'm going to be. It has a massive impact. And I highly recommend it that anyone who's had experiences of derailing themselves or undermining themselves just due to their own emotional experiences and not putting their best foot forward in combat or in training, have a go at that. 
Again, it's easy to do and it's really effective. And the better the character name you can come up with, the more it resonates with you and gives you that feeling of, I know how this person would respond in different situations, the better it will be. So there's a, a bit of advice for people who might struggle with that. Really appreciate those little tools that other athletes can use, man. I really appreciate that. I do know we're past our time and you have oh, a... Sorry, brother. I've been yawning at you. I really thank you for your time and appreciate um, your wife and family for allowing you the time to do well, this. You saw we had a cameo visit from one of them. So <laughs> That's great. Go. go put them to bed. We love it. Awesome. Thank you. It's such a pleasure, Mark. All the best to all you Thank you to the following sponsors for making our podcast possible. Redfern Physio have given their unique skills and long-term experience working with physical contact sports, leading the Rabbitohs in the NRL for the last 10 years. We have partnered with Redfern Physio to give our community the best support and guidance in injury prevention and rehabilitation. Bondi Beardall have been huge ambassadors for the fight community. They share our vision for making more resources available to fight athletes and have sponsored the Fighters Performance Podcast. Bearded Warriors can use the code FPP for a 15% discount on their products. We are grateful for access to the production and recording resources provided by Aona Business Share Space here in Sydney, Australia. Yours in health, performance, and anything hard to kill, Mark Brewer.